I made an unassisted triple play in T-ball when I was six, but I was the fifth of six boys. I knew all the rules. I knew how to run the bases. I knew how to tag people out. I knew you had to tag up. I mean, I knew. But most kids don't have that experience. At six, they're out there picking flowers, and I mean, they don't even know. Dan Crockett was just a toddler in 1972 when psychologists started batting around the term self-awareness. There was always structure and a goal. That was my life. Winning, you know, getting better, working out, playing games, you know, practicing. And before the age of five, Dan would sacrifice in the most selfless way you can imagine. It just so happened that I was the only match, and I had just been born when he was diagnosed. I was the youngest donor in history at the time. From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, you're listening to Circle Back. This is the show where Nashville's most dynamic entrepreneurs share their stories of startup success and stumbles. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. Today, a true success story with unexpected roots in faith, focus, and the enduring pain of a young life lost. This is the story of Dan Crockett. This episode is brought to you by financial planning and investment advisor, Haas Goodwin Wealth. Thanks to our media partner, The Nashville Post, and thanks to our friends at Lightning 100. This is a production of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. Here's our COO, John Murdoch, to share more. Being an entrepreneur is a difficult and often lonely journey. Hi, I'm John Murdoch, COO at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. And we're here to support entrepreneurs by connecting them with the critical resources to create, launch, and grow their businesses. Through each phase of the entrepreneurial life cycle, founders get access to entrepreneur advisors who have been there and done that, with successful exits from multi-million dollar companies and C-suite business professionals in Nashville's top industries. Whether it's learning the fundamentals of creating a business plan, to writing a sales program, or securing introductions to potential customers, The entrepreneurial process is full of obstacles that can be challenging for a founder to overcome alone. We've built a community where entrepreneurs can learn from each other and expert advisors, anchored by best-in-class programming. Nashville has a strong legacy of entrepreneurship, and we aim to keep that legacy alive by fueling our city's entrepreneurial spirit, from innovator to investor and back again. Join us at ec.co. My dad was a really strong Christian, and church was very, very important to him and important to us for him when we were growing up. Dan Crockett is a proud product of the Bible Belt and mostly credits his father for his conservative values and work ethic. We were church and Sundays go every Sunday morning, most Sunday nights, sometimes Wednesday night. I can remember as a child, just opening his Bible just to any random page, and you would see some colored pencil underlining of some verse with some note that he had written. I mean, he had he had covered the Bible from front to back many times uh, and could quote Scripture better than any person, I think, to this day that I've ever been around. And he met my mother 
teaching her Sunday school class, um, he told her when he first met her that he'd been praying for most of his life that God would give him six boys. And she needed to be ready for that if if she wanted to marry him. And uh, lo and behold, he had six sons. There were enough Crockett boys to pitch, catch, and fill the infield. Dan was number five and quickly learned that mother and father knew best. He was hot-tempered. We certainly got the belt, the switch, the paddle, uh, and the back of the hand and the wooden spoon, whatever it took. Uh, well, six boys. I'm imagining yeah. that's going to be a well, little it was rowdy. needed. And that, I mean, we weren't abused by any means, but, you know, we knew the authority figure in our home was my father and my mother. And we were not going to disrespect my mother ever. Uh, and we certainly weren't going to disrespect him uh, because he wouldn't have it. Shortly after his birth, Dan would occupy a unique place in the family and in the world of childhood cancer. My brother Bobby, and he was diagnosed with leukemia at six. And uh, I was, let's see, I was probably just a baby. And by the time he was 11, or 10-ish, 10 and a half-ish, right before his 11th birthday, we had come to the place where he needed a bone marrow transplant. Well, it just so happened that I was the only match. There was a hosp public hospital in Seattle was the only place at the time in the country that would do bone marrow transplants. Uh, I was there for probably six months or so, uh, just me and my mom and dad, and Bobby was in the hospital. Um, and I used to give blood almost daily. After the transplant, they sent me to go stay with my mother's family. So I flew from Seattle by myself with a host. There was a lady that, that hosted me on the trip. And uh, I remember getting on the plane, sitting there with this lady, and I sat by the window, and my parents were there watching, waiting for me to take off. And I refused to cry because I didn't want my parents to see me upset because I knew how upset they already were. And then as soon as we pulled away, you know, being four or five years old, I totally broke down. Bobby made it 108 days, I believe. Uh, you have to, 120 is kind of the magic number. Uh, your immune system is so decimated during that process that even the slightest little infection can kill you. And I think uh, he had a shot in his hip uh, that got infected, and, uh, and that's what kind of took him down. That's probably the single biggest event uh, or influential event that happened in my life. Maybe there's just something a little bit extra down inside because of experiencing tragedy like that, that there's just a little bit more inside of me that isn't afraid. Once Dan's childhood returned to some form of normalcy, he found a structure and solace in sports. And he also turned out to be pretty good. I mean, sports was my life. It's really the only thing I cared about growing up. Uh, you know, I had a girlfriend. 
but I didn't date around. Uh, I wasn't a party kid. You know, I was focused on playing ball. And um, and my high school coaches were like, look, you know, you're a good player. You've got a great skill set. You can do it. Uh, if God had given you three more inches, you know, then you'd be going to Tennessee. But uh, he didn't. And uh, I wanted to play four more years. He got those four more years at Lambeth College in Jackson, Tennessee. Named for a Methodist missionary, the liberal arts school produced two NFL players. Dan Crockett was a two-sport athlete. I was a receiver and kick returner and played uh, center field and bled off. We had really good teams in football my sophomore and junior year. Going into my last year, my senior year, we were ranked preseason seventh in the country. We'd just come off a bowl win the year before. Uh, We had most of our team back. My younger brother happened to be out there watching practice. And my position coach will tell you to this day, it sounded like a redwood tree snapping in half. We were doing uh, what's called skeleton drill. It's a passing game. And we're not even, we're in shoulder pads and helmet. We don't have pants on, it's just shoulder pads and helmet. Shells is what we called it. We're going against scout teams, so there's a freshman linebacker, and the offense corner says, hey, you know, why don't you set the tone for practice, knock him out. It's called a crackback block. So I'm flying down the line of scrimmage, and I'm really, I'm gonna absolutely decapitate him. I get up to him and hit him really hard, but in the process, our shins whipped together and it snapped my tibia in half. I got a medical red shirt and I did play the fall of 91. I made first team all-conference and was All-American that year as well, but I really wasn't the same player. Although he earned a business degree, Dan hadn't really given much thought what he wanted to do after college. He took a job in Memphis, but that only lasted six months. Unsure where to turn, he moved back home to Nashville. When I first moved home, I wasn't doing much of anything. I just kind of watched TV and hung out with my parents and talked to them. And so for, I don't know, six or eight months, I just did a little bit of nothing. I was probably depressed and and just didn't really know what to do. So I moved back, but I did begin to read a lot and really was in my Bible and praying. Probably the closest I've ever been in my life to the Lord was during that period. So my goals had to change, and I didn't know where to put that energy or that focus. But, you know, fortunately, after a little bit of a sabbatical, which looking back on it, I think was really good for me, um, I was able to redirect that into business. Then there was this little startup mortgage broker shop across the hall from the lady who was doing my resume. And she says, hey, you know, uh, I would meet with her on occasion and tell her about, you know, the things that were going on. And she says, I really think you ought to go talk to these guys. And uh, she said, the mortgage business is really hot right now. I didn't even know what a mortgage broker was. I didn't know what a mortgage was. Mortgage to me was watching It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Potter is trying to take everybody's home. And mortgage had a negative connotation in my mind. I said, okay, you know, so I go across the hall 
literally right next door and meet with these people. And uh, really nice guys, uh, but they were a bit odd. One was, uh, you could tell, was way, way, way intelligent, like beyond. But he wore overalls and he had a Mickey Mouse like phone in his office, but he was a super nice guy. And another guy who was from the Northeast and kind of looked like a washed up Wall Street wannabe kind of guy, you know, slacks on and open button down with no tie that looks like he should have had a tie on, you know, that look. And my father raised me, you know, and Franklin American, when I was there, we were suit and tie and professional dress every day. I'll never forget it before I went for my interview. He shined my sheet. I stood on the hearth uh, in our family room in the house that I grew up in. And uh, he shined my shoes by hand. And I walked in with my suit and tie on, my shine shoes. And, and I knew what I was walking into. Interviewed, and it was very odd. Of all the opportunities, this was the worst on paper of any of them. So I go to work there, and uh, the first day I'm quoting interest rates. I don't even know what a 30-year fixed is. I don't know what a note rate is. I don't know what a closing is. I don't know anything. But they threw me in the fire immediately. So I started learning, and again, all I did was work because I didn't have anything else to do. Wore a suit and tie every day. Nobody else did. I think in October of that year, I made $8,000 in a month because everybody was wanting to refi, and we had these rate tables in the newspaper and an 800 number. So they're just calling nonstop, wanting to refinance. And it, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. It, it just completely freaked me out. I mean, I'm literally living with my parents and been mowing grass making $10 an hour. Well, first of all, I was worried that I was going to get paid just because of the, the disheveled nature of the leadership of this company. I, it didn't seem real to me. So I took the check straight to the bank that it came from and cashed it. I didn't even deposit it. I got the cash because I didn't think it was real. So I'm walking out of the bank with $5,500 in cash in my pocket, and I am a nervous wreck. I'm, I've never seen that much cash ever. I'm sure the teller thought I was a drug dealer, you know. So I walk in there with $5,500 in cash and said, I need to deposit this. So fast forward past that, December comes, there's an insurance company that owned this little mortgage shop. It was called Merchant's Home Mortgage at the time. And they were putting some heat on them. Uh, so the overall guy calls me in. He says, hey, you know, we're not doing too good. We're struggling. Will you help me? What do you think we need to be doing? I said, sure. You know, I'll do whatever I can. So that night, I began to put together an operational workflow model for the company. And I went to Walmart, and I bought these little magnets because we had these little, I called them wheelie carts. They're about two or three feet off the ground, and they hold manila folders. And that's where you put the loan file in. But I took these magnets, wherever the magnet was is where you took your newly originated loan. 
and you gave it to that processor who then would pull credit, do income verification. That's what a processor does, puts all the data together so it can go into underwriting where they can make the ultimate decision whether or not the loan is, you know, approvable or not. And we would take that magnet, and after you put your file in that processor, you had to take the magnet and put it on the next one. Very simple. I mean, archaic, really. But before that, we had nothing. So an immediate fix in order to create equal workflow among our processors, we used that magnet. We still tell you about that. It was a hot dog. Just a little hot dog magnet. And then as we got Loan Tracker going, we could do it more electronically. But I could clearly see that this doesn't work, what we're doing here, but it can work if we do this. And simplicity really at that time was was paramount because of the the chaos that everybody was working in. Um, so making it simple where something they could clearly see like a magnetic hot dog being transferred from one processor to the next just to create equal workflow, uh, you know, it gave some measure of stability, if that makes any sense. The chaos gave Dan an opportunity to create order, but there were changes on the way. In February of 94, they let those two guys go, and I had been to a couple board meetings and um, had gotten to know me just a little bit, and they... They asked me, said, look, we don't like this business. Uh, we want to get out of the space. We've obviously not had a very good experience. We'll give you another $100,000 in cash to burn through. If you can get it to cash flow and want to buy it, we'll give you till September the 30th. And at that time, if you think you want it, we'll sell it to you for the assets. And I said, okay. If I was going to acquire this, I needed to see a clean picture. And I had a really good financial guy with me, Charles Mullins. I'll never forget him. He helped me kind of navigate through all that, taught me a lot about the accounting side of business. So I felt like I could make a go of it, and I bought it in September of 94. They were willing to finance it, so it was $112,500 that I paid them for it. And uh, we took off from there. So the first thing Dan did was change the name from Merchant's Home Mortgage to Franklin American Mortgage. The second thing he did, create a plan for growth. For me, really right out of the gate, I wanted to be big. I didn't want to be a broker in Brentwood, Tennessee. I, I wanted to be a player. I wanted to make Franklin American a top 20 lender. The only way I saw at that point for us to get big without levering my stock or giving away the business was to get into what you call third-party lending. The business that Dan bought was just a mortgage broker, meaning they simply managed the paperwork and the loan process for the banks. It's the banks who would actually fund the loans. So in order to get big, Dan would have to fund the loans like a bank. That means he would have to become a mortgage bank. And to do that, he was gonna have to figure out a way to get a line of credit to start funding all of these loans, or what's called in the industry, a warehouse facility. That was our next step. Uh, I met Bobby Frank, so he flies in, meets with me. They were very concerned that I was only 26 years old. So Bobby goes back and really battles on my behalf and says, hey, 
this company is great. This leader, I know he's young, but he knows what he's doing. I'm telling you, he's going to be successful. He really believed in me. So they make a mistake. They pull a file out, and it's first Franklin, not Franklin American. Well, the approval office tells Bobby that Franklin's been approved. So he calls me and tells me that we've been approved for our warehouse facility. And, of course, I'm thrilled because that's we can't become a mortgage bank from a broker unless we have a warehouse facility. He calls me and says we've been approved. Well, he's, he goes in and finds out that it wasn't Franklin American. It was First Franklin. So Bobby tells his boss that, look, I've already called Dan. I've called Franklin American, told them they've been approved. I am not calling him back. We're doing this. So Bobby went to battle for me, and we became the very first mortgage broker that had ever gotten their first warehouse line from this company. And uh, so we just organically built it, one broker at a time, one loan at a time, continued to grow, continued to sign up brokers. With a little luck, but mostly an infectious ambition, he attracted talented team members. Dan is off to a quick start. And by the way, his champion, Bobby Frank, came on board just a few months later to run that wholesale division. Soon after, Dan brought on several more talented lieutenants to expand their internal brokerage, retail operations, and he hired a CFO to start a correspondent channel. Correspondent is taking other mortgage banks, selling new loans that are closed. That's a whole nother dynamic. So community banks, regional banks, other mortgage bankers would sell us loans that they had already completely fulfilled, meaning they'd processed them, underwritten them, closed them, funded them, and then they would sell us the finished product. And then we would either bulk it and sell it or we'd keep the servicing, which is what we did mainly, especially the last 10 years I was there. But we grew that the same way, one customer at a time, one call at a time. And by the time I sold, I think we had close to a thousand different community banks, regional banks, and mortgage bankers that were clients, and um, the rest is history. There was nothing fancy or unique about Franklin American. It was built around discipline and execution. That's what I cared about, was the mortgage business and my job. It's really all I thought about. And when I was playing ball, it's all I thought about was sports and lifting weights and running and reps and catching and catching and catching or swinging the bat, you know, 250 times a day. You know, it's it's what I was committed to. I had a great team around me. We all thought the same. We believed the same. We, were, we had a oneness of mission. I always said, I, I don't want to be a jack of all. I want to be a master of one. And 75, 80% of what we did was the market was Fannie, Freddie, Jenny Mays, conventional FHA, VA, jumbo lending, mainstream, conservative, what had been around for decades and decades. Everybody and their mother, you know, was in that space, all the big five banks, and but we were gonna be better because of our operational workflow, our technology, and we were gonna love our customer. 99% of the people that walked in our doors were going through the single largest financial transaction they'll have in their entire life. They're borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars. They needed to feel safe. They needed to feel like, I'm dealing with a pro here, someone that's got discipline, intelligence, 
I trust them just simply by the way they present themselves. Dan's assembled a great team. They've got a great culture. So when was it when he began to feel like what his team built became something sustainable? I woke up January the 1st of 2001 and I felt like, okay, I really think we're gonna make it through the year, no matter what happens. We, we've made enough, the balance sheet's grown enough, we've, we've got enough cash, and then really from there on, we just, I mean, we just grew. 03 was a huge year for us, which was 10 years after I started. And it, it really takes that much, especially if you're trying to grow like we did organically. Because, you know, for every dollar we made, I'd put that dollar right back in the business to try to make a dollar fifty. Make that dollar fifty, put it right back in, let's make two dollars. I mean, that's what organic growth is. We didn't go acquire people. Because to me, the most absolute single most important part of Franklin American success was our culture. Period. You hear football coaches talk about it all the time especially coaches that come into programs that are broken, uh, that haven't been good, and they get turned around. It all starts with culture. And to me, our culture was, I've hit on a few of them, how we dress, be on time, have discipline, oneness of mission, uh, master of one, not a jack of all. It's, it's one train going down one track, straight ahead, everybody's looking in the same direction. It's really not that hard, but everybody has to buy into it. By the mid-2000s, the Franklin American engine was certainly racing down the track. However, the entire industry was about to go off the rails. It's going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand. So subprime first rose its head in the 90s, and it was Countrywide uh, that came up with it. Well, Countrywide was the lender. I mean, they were the largest lender in the country. Um, I just thought that, you know, well, if Countrywide's doing it, you know, it's got to be good. You know, they're the biggest lender in the country. They've got, uh, you know, numerous different products. They've got lawyers everywhere. They've got risk management staff everywhere. I mean, if they're doing it, it's got to be an okay product. Uh, so, you know, we dabbled in it, and we had a lot of problems with it. It didn't perform well. Fast forward, interest rates began to rise. Dan started to see a second wave of these same types of loans getting popular again. Fool me once, shame on, on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The first time, I was young and inexperienced, and we participated, and it didn't work, and I learned from it. So the next time it happened, I had learned previously that this is not a good situation. It's kind of like touching a hot stove. You know, you're not going to do it twice. And that, that's that's why we chose to stay out of it. Crockett clears up some misconceptions surrounding terminology, which will be important later. But while doing this, he can barely contain his contempt. What caused the debacle was alternative A paper, which is no income, no asset, 125% loans to equity, but you're not verifying their job, you didn't verify their income, 
You didn't verify their assets. You didn't verify anything. All they did was walk in, here's a property, this is what we want to buy, and you had people lending as much as 125% of the value of that property without verifying anything about the borrower. Nothing other than a credit score, which is ludicrous. It's complete insanity, but it was all collateral-based lending. And for 15 years, up until August of 2007, housing had appreciated every year at a pretty good click. The housing boom is a coast-to-coast story, with that reliable national barometer, the median sales price of an American home, rising every year. So the lenders were betting on housing continuing to appreciate which is why they would be willing to let you borrow more than the value of the property, which to me is insane. But here's the thing. The industry was only an $800 billion place. Fast forward to 2006, the industry was $3.3 trillion in total mortgages on an annual basis, and as much as 60% in 2006 was Alt-A which is an absolute, utter disaster waiting to happen. Over the course of 10 years, Alt-A loans had grown more than 15-fold. Crockett felt like a bit of a canary in a coal mine, but one that everyone else mostly ignored. Everybody in the industry was doing it, other than us. Of the top 25 lenders in the country, I would, I'm, I'm almost certain we were the only one that was not doing it. I spent four years recruiting my own sales force because they wanted to go across the aisle and work for someone that offered these programs. And I had to work very hard and diligently for three or four years to convince my sales force that this is not going to last. This is going to collapse and it's going to be a disaster. I was known for it in the industry. I mean, you know, we were the 14th largest lender in the country. I was on the, you know, many different advisory boards. I was on the board of the Mortgage Bankers Association. They all knew where I stood. So fast forward into 2006, you've got a market that's four times the size it was eight years earlier, and 60% of the market is in this product. So. August of 2007, you have the first time in 15 years that housing depreciates. Well, immediately overnight, all the liquidity for the Alte subprime product dries up. Hang with us. We'll tell you exactly what happens right after the break. Meet Art Haas. He's the CEO and managing partner at Haas Goodwin Wealth. Most of our clients, when they come to us, have experienced some level of success. You know, our clients have taken risk in their lives, and so our job is to help them take the fruits of that labor and to maintain it and grow it. They work with their clients and their clients' families. As they transition from different points, in their lives and then also to think about that next generation and to help them with educating their their own families and their children and their children's children about how to, you know, effectively 
manage the success that the previous generations have provided for them. Reach out to their friendly and helpful team at HawesGoodwin.com. Make your mark. Together, we'll make sure it lasts. Over the next three years, housing values dropped by over 50%. Nine million people lost their jobs. Investment banks and lenders failed. The economy was devastated, and the government embarked upon what was then the largest financial bailout in history. Dan felt vindicated, as he had been one of the few, maybe the only, major player in the industry who stayed away from this house of cards. Franklin American was poised for success, in large part because they didn't participate in the questionable lending practices. The market started to come back to them, but not so fast. Enter the Department of Justice. This plan will not save every home, but it will give millions of families resigned to financial ruin a chance to rebuild. The Obama administration was under intense political pressure to punish bad actors in the mortgage crisis. And while there were certainly plenty of blame to go around, they chose to zero in on the lenders. And here's where it gets a little murky. The DOJ decided to pursue penalties against lenders by prosecuting violations of the False Claims Act as it pertains to FHA loans. FHA loans and the Alt-A loans that Crockett described were really two different things. FHA loans, which are government-insured loans for lower-income borrowers, actually required higher approval standards, specifically designed to avoid the problems that caused the meltdown. This move raised controversy in the industry. Franklin American was getting drawn in as part of the collateral damage. What the DOJ did wasn't even related to the Alte subprime. It was FHA, which is another reason why I will tell you it was 100% about nothing but money. They went and found whatever they could find, whatever statute they could apply to attack financial institutions. Now, borrowers that had FHA loans struggled because the economy collapsed, but FHA lending had nothing to do with the crisis. The False Claims Act is what they used to attack financial institutions, which had everything to do with insuring FHA loans. It had nothing to do with subprime, zero. Not that there weren't entities that deserved it. There are companies that were certainly out of line, that did bad things, that the DOJ certainly should have gone after. But the thing that's disappointing to me is just the blanket across the board for the top 25, everybody's gonna pay. Dan initially received word that Franklin American was going to be fined $485 million. In essence, a death sentence. Dan was fighting for the very survival of Franklin American. They put you in a corner and make you pay because if you don't, in my case, they're going to challenge you or sue you for three times what you're worth, which would collapse you anyway. So they force you into position to make you pay them, regardless of the facts of the case. We spent years trying to argue, and they would not even talk about the merits of the case. The only thing they wanted to discuss is what we could afford to pay them without putting us out of business. 
I'm one of the only people, I think I may be the only one, that they agreed to meet with. I went to D.C., to the Treasury Building, me, my lawyers, my CFO, and there was two financial people and probably six or eight, ten lawyers from HUD and DOJ in the room. And we spent three and a half hours in there, and not one single lawyer from DOJ or HUD asked me a question. In all honesty, I'm not sure they even knew my file. I don't don't even think they knew who I was. I spent three and a half hours basically negotiating with them about how much I could afford to pay without putting me out of business. That was the narrative. In December of 2015, the nightmare ended, and Franklin American agreed to a $70 million settlement with the Department of Justice. Crockett is still furious. These guys robbed me of $70 million and wouldn't even listen to my argument. It it was complete extortion. Everybody that knew us, knew our company, knew who we were, all of our financial partners, they all knew 1,000% certain that we did not do anything wrong. The Department of Justice eventually collected over $7 billion from settlements from lenders. However, unbeknownst at the time, there was a critical silver lining. These False Claims Act tactics were so controversial inside the industry, many of the largest players in the space, namely Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, moved away from FHA lending altogether. The result was more than half of Franklin American's competition for FHA lending was gone. When it all collapsed, FHA became 35 40% of the market again, which we were well positioned for, and that's where we killed it. These next two years proved to be record ones for Franklin American. Crockett had stayed the course, weathered the storm, and was thriving. In fact, it was just a little over two years after settlement was final that Crockett was approached by and eventually sold Franklin American to Citizens Bank for a reported $511 million. Dan ended his season at Franklin American with a winning record, but sports were hardly in the rear view. I was talking to a friend of mine just last night. He was recently at a golf event and um, was talking to one of the, the head pros at a club that I'm a member at. He said, you were the meanest, most competitive golfer he has ever seen. And for 10 years, the Franklin American name was on the Music City Bowl, a Nashville holiday tradition. We just recently went to Seattle, and I had not been back to Seattle since I left when I was just short of five years old. It really blew me away that that apartment building is still there. Uh, And I could vividly remember, uh, you know, the whole whole deal. Even crazier, one of the doctors that worked on my brother's case is still alive. And he, we went and met with him. And the doctor that actually did the transplant for my brother won the Nobel Prize. Especially under the gun, 
when you're trying to win something, maybe there's just something a little bit extra down inside because of experiencing tragedy like that, that there's just a little bit more. You know, it's late in the game or you're in the fourth quarter. You're incredibly tired. Everybody's tired. It's a close game or somebody's got to make a play. You know, who wants the ball? Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Circle Back. Be sure to subscribe at ec.co slash circleback and subscribe, rate, and review the show anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Haas Goodwin Wealth. Circle Back is also made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Thanks to our media sponsor, The Nashville Post. And thanks to our friends at Lightning 100. A shout out to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen, script writing by Demetria Kalidimos, and production support from Gaines Allen. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. He the mighty, the might come today. He the mighty, the mighty, the might come and take. He the might come and take away the pain. He might come and take it all away. The healer might, healer might bring the rain. The healer might, healer might leave you in a hurricane. Oh, but keep breathing on the bounding waves. It might come and take it all away. The healer might, healer might, healer might come today. The healer might, oh, when you feel like coming, your body breaks. Come on, keep it steady as the sun that the body says. We aren't in our final phrase. Skin scratch prayers come to pass. I have ripped out the last of me. Can't you see? I've been wasting here. I forgot how to breathe. Come hold me. And I know that we're still gonna die someday But would you come and take it all?